Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello and welcome to War Room. I'm Jacqueline Witt, Associate Professor of Strategy here at the U.S. Army War College and Editor-in-Chief of War Room. So one of the constants of war is that it doesn't affect only militaries and military personnel. Civilians are deeply affected, and these considerations are as important and complex in the 21st century as they ever have been. I'm here in the virtual studio today with Sarah Petrin, who is a subject matter expert on topics such as the protection of civilians, women, peace and security, sexual exploitation and abuse, human rights, and peace operations. She has published widely for a number of national and international organizations and has significant experience in humanitarian initiatives in over 20 countries all over the world. She is the author of a recent white paper published by the Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute, or PKSOI, which is part of the U.S. Army War College. The white paper is titled Human Security and U.S. Military Operations, a Primer for DOD. And so that's what I've asked her to come and talk with us about today. Uh, Sarah, welcome to War Room. Thank you, Jackie. I'm happy to be here. So often I find myself in podcasts, starting with a question about definitions. And so this one is going to be no different. Um, Can you give us a brief rundown on the definition of the phrase human security? Yes. Human security has a lot of different definitions, but it is not a term that we find in international law. It was first coined by the United Nations Development Program as an approach to assist governments in addressing widespread and cross-cutting challenges to the survival, livelihood, and dignity of their people. And this was a definition adopted by the General Assembly of the UN in 2012, But there was also a groundbreaking report on human development that outlined seven different types of securities that keep people safe from harm. And these included things like food security and environmental security, uh, health security, as well as economic, personal, and community considerations. Um, And this uh, framework has been used to try to address uh, the different vulnerabilities to human beings in any given environment. So one of the things that comes to mind is that human security as a as a phrase or an idea is probably meant to contrast with national security. And so if we think about national security as the realm that most of our listeners, are operating in as, you know, as military professionals or as quote unquote national security professionals. Um, How is the human security framework, you know, how does it compare? How does it line up with that idea of national or international security? Yeah. So if we think about the different factors that make up national security, we think about uh, the sovereignty of national governments, we think about territorial control of the state, 
domestic stability, uh, the administration, the infrastructure, the critical assets, the political influence and military power, as well as financial infrastructure of the state, uh, such as taxation, for example. Uh, but human security is really uh, centered around the individual. It's about uh, things like personal property and shelter, uh, access to work and income, access to school and education, and access to basic services uh, that sustain human life, like energy and water and communications, as well as health uh, services. So this is a different approach where instead of putting the state and the government at the center of what makes a place secure, uh, we shift our framework to thinking about population-centric approaches and what makes human beings safe or unsafe in any particular place. Thanks. I think that's a really helpful um, way to to think about the about the question um, and to to contrast it with the other frameworks that we that we so often use. I'm interested to know more about um, what are some of the the drivers of insecurity uh, in the, especially in the 21st century, maybe what are some of the, of the trends or some of the things that are threatening human security as we think about the contemporary global environment? Yeah. Thank you for asking about that. One thing I wanted to mention also is why is the term human security of interest to the United States and I think we have to look to our allies and how they're using the term. And this is something that uh, the United Kingdom uh, Ministry of Defense is using the term human security and has recently developed human security units that are deployed to various missions. And these units are addressing complex social and economic issues affecting populations within the mission. And then NATO is also using the term human security. And in the recent summit uh, defined this as risks and threats to the population in conflict or crisis and how to mitigate and respond to them. And I think this is really important because um, all of our frameworks about the protection of civilians are based on international humanitarian law and the law of armed conflict. And the law of armed conflict looks at armed actors as being the primary source of insecurity. And armed conflict is not the only thing that makes people unsafe. Uh, now we see challenges like cybersecurity and disinformation, um, disruptions and access to financial capital that can lead to human deprivation, uh, food insecurity that leads uh, to famine and conflict. And the pandemic has also shown us how global health challenges can have a devastating impact on society without a shot ever being fired. And uh, DOD also has a new uh, framework for irregular warfare that looks at these types of hybrid challenges. And uh, one thing I address in my paper is that we see risks to human beings in the environment and in infrastructure that are not necessarily coming from armed actors that are beyond the scope of some of the 
frameworks we have for how we deal with conflict. And so if we think about the relationship between war, armed conflict, and these um, sort of like non-conflict driven things, do you think there are specific areas in which military professionals need to be particularly sort of tuned into questions about human security or the the challenges and topics that you've talked about? Or are there are there places um, where where certain certain parts of the of the challenge, because it's quite a big, quite a big problem, um, where military professionals can sort of leave it to to other organizations or other actors in the in the system. Yeah, I think that human security can be a helpful planning tool for militaries. Because if you look at all the vulnerabilities of the population in a given environment, um, then you can see different risk factors that might be drivers of conflict, but also opportunities for conflict resolution. Um, In the U.S., we have uh, some relatively newer laws that I outline in my paper that are hinting at what a human security planning framework might look like uh, for the U.S. military. We have a law on women, peace, and security that uh, says that we should be analyzing gender dynamics and conflict and integrating gender analysis into our operational frameworks um, and also empowering women in conflict zones. We also have a law on child soldiers and addressing uh, reporting on the use of children in armed conflict. And we have laws on vetting partner forces for human rights violations, uh, analyzing atrocity prevention indicators. And now there's a Global Fragility Act that has renewed emphasis on conflict prevention. And I think all these uh, laws and all this analysis uh, doesn't just live in the State Department in terms of analyzing uh, both the drivers uh, for conflict uh, prevention and resolution. Um, but if we look at what is going on with all these factors in operations, uh, we can see where there might be holistic opportunities um, to end conflict And rather than looking at the population in a silo, um, such as whether or not there are human rights violations going on and whether or not children are part of the conflict or whether women are involved in peace negotiations, a human security framework would give us a more comprehensive picture of how the military can engage with the population to achieve the desired end state. What do you think are the um, the things that a military professional would need um, to either reframe their thinking or shift their focus, or um, if they were if they were interested in sort of using human security as a framework for planning and thinking about military operations? What are some of the the questions that they might ask, or the resources that they might go to to think about this problem? Some of this is a functional issue, Jackie, in in terms of the way our military is structured. So right now, the people who most commonly deal with human security issues are in the J-9 who deal with civil military coordination, or in some countries, it's uh, called the CIMIC function that manages relationships with international partners and 
local contacts. But um, if we also have a human security framework in the J2, in the intelligence, where we're constantly analyzing the way that conflict is uh, impacting the population or the way a disaster is affecting a given uh, population, we would quickly identify the risks and vulnerabilities and uh, make uh, filling gaps part of the the plans and the operational divisions. And I think there needs to be uh, a perspective that goes across the J1 to J9 and impacts all of the functions of military operations in a way that um, that benefits the population as a whole. Yeah, so this idea of an integrated, coordinated effort, I think is is really important that it's not just the um, the responsibility of a of a single person or a small cell of of people or planners, but it really is something that that spans the um, the the totality of of the military enterprise. Um, if we think about, oh, go ahead. I was also going to say that a lot of the planning um, and analysis for operations is focused on a given enemy, right? It's focused on an armed actor. Uh, it's focused on a specific target. And if we think of the population as being part of the center of gravity of the response and as being critical to achieving the desired end state, uh, then we would um, include them in that analysis as one of the critical factors for our success. So that that actually makes me wonder if there are places where a human security framework or mindset uh, are there are there tensions with this idea of national or international security uh, that require military leaders in in particular to sort of make difficult choices or do you do you see these as as working together or are there places where you think that they pull in maybe opposite directions? I think they can be complementary. And one example of this right now is within uh, NATO LANCOM. They have a human security unit with advisors on different aspects of uh, the population that are looking at issues of um, women, peace and security and children in armed conflict and a number of cross-cutting topics. And of course, you know, we're talking quite theoretically here, but when you are looking at a specific operation um, such as the Ukraine or Syria or Iraq, you see the way that the population um, has been used by negative influences uh, to prolong the conflict or to uh, create instability. And reversing that trend is uh, very important. And everything that you could do uh, to influence the outcome would be very specific to that particular country context. So if we look at what's going on in the Sahel right now, um, the needs of the population and the human security challenges are just quite different than what we see in the Middle East or the Asia Pacific, for example. Um, so I think that human security becomes more real when you apply it to a specific place. And then you can see where you need to uh, shift operations. Do you have in, do you have in your mind a sort of set of 
questions or, or f- frames, you know, does it make sense to use the the like inputs of human security? How might military professionals sort of organize their their thinking if this is if this is sort of new to them? Um, what might they what might they do to put some of this into immediate practice in those like concrete specific ways? Yeah, one tool I really like that's not a U.S. tool is uh, something that the Peacekeeping Center helped NATO with, which is a protection of civilians handbook for the operational commands. So it outlines all of the tools that can be used to analyze a conflict or a crisis operation and look across the entire population uh, to address specific risks and vulnerabilities to their safety. And that is under a protection of civilians framework, but it does integrate some of these other uh, human dynamics into it. And we see now some working groups within DOD trying to address Um, human security and environmental factors. And I would say that's an area where we may not have all the tools that we need to understand environmental risk, but I feel that those are coming down the pike in the near future. In a couple of your answers, we've talked about a protection of civilian framework. We've talked about or mentioned women, peace, and security. Uh, There's all sorts of other... um, agendas and frameworks and ways of thinking uh, that sort of influence or or come into these discussions. I'd like to ask you to talk, you know, maybe a little more specifically about the Women, Peace and Security or WPS agenda uh, and how you see it relating to the human security, questions about human security. Yeah, the unique thing about the Women, Peace and Security agenda and uh, human security or protection of civilians is so often human security is looking at the risks uh, and the vulnerabilities within a population. The great thing about women, peace, and security is it's also looking at women as um, change agents in society who can help us bring about uh, better conflict prevention tools, uh, better conflict resolution and mitigation tools. And it's it's really interesting um, looking at Afghanistan as an example, even though perhaps in the news we see uh, the difficult context with the Taliban gaining strength. Um, currently, uh, in the last 20 years, we've seen a lot of incredible women come into positions of power, um, elected positions of power in um, at the municipal level, at the um, at the regional level. And these women have had a voice in, uh, peace negotiations. And I think that this is, um, a sign of progress that we have to watch very carefully now, how these women can influence, uh, the Taliban as, uh, there are ongoing negotiations for how the government uh, will be formed. And in many other uh, contexts, we see women having a powerful voice, whether it's a public voice or a, a private voice within their families and communities um, that can lead to more sustainable um, conflict resolution. And so I think we still 
haven't seen everything that Afghan women can do. And I still have hope that they will continue to influence and shape uh, the government of Afghanistan. So I think that example um, out of Afghanistan is a really interesting and and complex one that so many uh, Americans who have long experience and personal connections and um, all sorts of ties to that to that country are going to be keeping an eye on so so closely. Um, it strikes me that there are you know there are similar conversations that were happening or are still happening right in Colombia in uh, in places all over the world where the role of, of women in negotiating uh, conflict settlements and resolutions to conflicts has been has been really critical to the work of, uh, of peace activists and peacemakers all over. Um, when we think about the military's role vis-a-vis human security or vis-a-vis the WPS agenda, um, when we talk about all of the all of the complex issues that come into play. Um, what are some of the the ways that you see allies and partners uh, sort of improving their capacity to address human security concerns? What are some of the maybe the gaps that need to be filled and the questions that need to be asked? That's such a good question. Of course, you know the U.S. has global partnerships and every. <laughs> COCOM has its own uh, campaign plan and strategy for uh, working on women, peace, and security. And I think in in every region, it's a little bit different, right? So um, in the Asia Pacific, we see a lot of work on disaster risk reduction and um, engaging women in relief response to make sure that uh, the needs of women and girls are addressed in emergency relief operations with our partners. Uh, that's really important. Uh, when it comes to uh, conflict zones, I often say like just recognizing that gender is a factor um, is really something that we need to improve. I mean, if if we look at our African partners, we don't have a lot of uh, females in military uh, uniform that are working in the security sector, and we need to engage more women in uh, peacekeeping. And that's something that is also part of the WPS agenda: is recognizing that women can play an important role in uh, the safety and security of. Uh, their countries and in international missions. And we should be supporting more women uh, going into these missions Um, and not just as gender advisors, but as logisticians and as intelligence analysts and um, as key leaders in the missions themselves. And so there's a lot of work to do just in recognizing uh, the women who are willing and able and have the talent uh, to contribute in the missions uh, that are already underway. And I mentioned UN peacekeeping because it's it's really important. And um, if we look at the situation in, in Haiti, for example, you know, the peacekeeping mission there uh, was winding down um, 
a few years uh, before the president was assassinated. And this just created a security gap in which gangs and militias um, started having more control in the country and, and led to a total breakdown. So I think sometimes in the U.S. we, we fail to appreciate how strategic peacekeeping missions can be and uh, whether those involve more military or police personnel, but certainly having more women involved in these missions um, is just a great plus for the population as a whole in feeling both represented and uh, to be able to work with women and girls to address their security concerns. Yeah, I think one of the one of the things that I think about when relating human security and and WPS is this idea that, and it, it sounds so simple, but women and and children are in fact people and they're part of this this human um like they're they're part of the humanity that we are we are trying to uh trying to serve that peacekeeping operations are trying to you know trying to protect the societies that we're trying to build and so the idea whether it's in national security or in human security sort of frameworks um, the idea of excluding large swaths of people uh, for gender, other, you know, age or other other characteristics. Um, there's a there's a certain level at which like it just doesn't make rational sense. And so so adding them adding these you know back into the conversations is is part of what we can do to make them more holistic, to make them um, you know more responsive to uh, conditions as they as they change uh, on the on the ground. Yeah, it's it's amazing, Jackie, how when we fail to appreciate um, women and the the positive role they can play, we also fail to acknowledge how women can be conscripted into armed services and uh, forcibly become part of the conflict. And it's just incredible, you know, where you see that um, in Somalia, for example, um, women and children are the number one uh, target for new recruits into Al-Shabaab. Um, children are recruited to be spies. Uh, they're taken out of school. Uh, they're taught to be suicide bombers. And also in Iraq and Syria, ISIS was just uh, merciless in uh, developing these sons of the caliphate and children uh, laced with explosives that were uh, part of uh, the battle in um, Mosul and other places such as Raqqa. And when we fail to recognize that there will be women and children on the battlefield, uh, we are also not preparing our own uh, soldiers to deal with these dilemmas to come face to face um, with people that they thought might not have been a threat to them who actually are a threat to them. And um, so I think it's not just for the the positive benefit of including the human dynamic. We also have to see how human beings are being used um, to prolong the conflict or to gain some type of strategic advantage over Western forces um, by putting uh, miners on the battlefield, for example. So it, it's a very complicated situation. And as I said, it's different for every country, but I can't think of any conflict where we can't apply a gender analysis or a human security analysis and come up both with risks and opportunities um, that would help us achieve our broader 
uh, goals for that particular country uh, to achieve stability. I, I like the idea of expanding our aperture to think about more complex and more uh, issues. I, I'm looking at our, at our time and I'm wondering uh, with just a few minutes left, if there is any other sort of last word or parting thoughts that you'd like to share with our War Room listeners today on these really complex um, and interesting topics that you've, that you've brought forward for us. Yeah, I would just say that um, human security is a framework that is an evolving one, and it is not set in stone in terms of how the U.S. will conceive of human security, uh, whether we will look at it in the same way that our allies and partners and in NATO or the European Union uh, look at it. But in my white paper, I really try to lay out the uh, different U.S. laws and uh, different types of guidance that exist already so that we can be prepared uh, to better understand where we fit into this uh, broader picture about where uh, the international community is uh, bringing what was really a civilian governance concept into the security sector and into a framework uh, for operations. So if some of this sounded uh, not as concrete to you as you might like to see, um, then I think the white paper just lays it out in more detail. And um, and it's just something to watch as we look to future conflicts and uh, see challenges come from non-state actors, uh, see challenges within the environment and within uh, structures that don't necessarily have an origin in an armed actor, um, as well as technology, which is not always clear in terms of the origin of a particular technological threat. Sure. So I think this can be applied in a number of contexts and um, it is a challenge that we'll continue to address. Fantastic. So complex uh, challenges, opportunities, uh, risks, rewards, all of all of that. Uh, thank you so much for giving us uh, many, many things to think about, many different ways to make connections between important ideas. Um, so I'd really like to thank you, Sarah, for coming uh, to War Room today to talk about human security and a real call for military professionals to pay to pay attention. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much, Jackie. Uh, and as we wrap up this episode, please send us your comments uh, on this one or any other future episodes that you'd like to hear. We're always interested in hearing from you. We hope you'll subscribe to A Better Peace. And after you've subscribed, we hope that you will rate and review the program and tell other people about it because that's how we will grow our community so they can join in these discussions as well. We'll look forward to having you all join us again soon. And until next time, for War Room, I'm Jackie Witt. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.